As we begin this morning and this next passage of 1 John, I want to talk about a show that was very popular a couple years ago and one that really caught my eye. And there's a little bit of a resonance between The Good Life and The Good Place. How many here have seen the show The Good Place? I am fascinated with this show. And it's really, I can't quite go into all the details of why because I probably would spoil everything in the show. So what I'm going to try to talk about today is what would be in the trailer, if that makes sense. The trailer of what, here's the pitch of the show and why, why you watch it. It came out several years ago. But the show features, uh, Kirst, uh, this, uh, oh, I'm going to blank it her. Kristen Bell, I almost called her Kirsten Dunst. That is not Kristen Dunst. Kristen Bell, who is Elmer Shellstrap. And how the show begins is she wakes up and she's in the good place, which in the show's world is, quote unquote, heaven. She finds herself all the way around this, what is presented as this amazing world to live in with everything she could possibly need. And then as she walks in, she has a specific home tailored to her. And as she walks into the home specifically tailored to her, she meets her soulmate, her soulmate named Chidi. And as she talks with Chidi, she immediately confesses to him something that is the crux of the whole show. I'm not supposed to be here. (laughs) The whole idea is that finally, you've made it to the good place. You made it to heaven. You did everything right. Good for you. And then at the same time, she's there and she's instantly wrestling with, I'm an imposter. I lived a horrible life. I don't belong here. And so in this picture you see here, you see her talking with Chidi saying, how do I do this? How do I figure out what happens? Because the events that unfold in the show I find fascinating is that all of a sudden everything starts to go wrong in the good place. There are shrimp flying in the, in the, in the ocean, in the, the, the sky. And eventually the, there's like the whole earth, like foundation of the whole town that they're living in cracks. It's almost like it's revolting or it looks like it's revolting against the fact that there's an imposter in the good place. And what's fascinating, which I won't go into too many details with, is so then she decides, okay, well, how do I learn how to be a good person on the fly? That's what she tries to do. She's, she's currently looking at a chalkboard, talking about philosophy, figuring out the word there is utilitarianism. She's like, how do I be a good person? What does it look like to become a good person? And so she does everything she can to feel like she belongs in a place that she knows if she looks back on her life that she has no business being in. This oftentimes is how I feel that many Christians can feel about being part of the church. <laughs> It's not because our teaching is completely off in the sense of we don't proclaim the gospel or the good news, but many Christians who especially grow up in the church can start to feel like you're you're an imposter. Do I really belong here? And there's some reasons that are pretty natural in that. But if I ask you that question, how do you know that you belong with God and that you're in the right place? How you go about responding to that question says a lot about how you view humanity, how you view God. And what John here, in the passage that Arnie just read for us, what he is highlighting in this letter is that, yes, you do belong. You do belong. If you believe Jesus came for you, for each one of you, you do belong. And it's not because of anything that you've done. That's what 1 John is telling us. The letter has been focusing on this. You do belong. But that question of how do I know I belong is important. So I want you to keep that in your mind. 
This whole letter has been, been unfolding, and I like to keep the flow of the letter, so if you miss the message, that's okay. But I want us to understand how what we just read fits in everything that First John has just told us. So in First John, it begins with this amazing introduction of, here is the word of life. Jesus came down from the heavens and became human and revealed the love of God to us. The word of life has been proclaimed. It appeared to us. And then we look deeper into what does that mean? Okay, so the word of life appeared to you and I. So then that means we can step in the light. We can walk in the light because God is light. And then if we walk in the light, we live in the fellowship of God. There's this fellowship of the Trinity, God, Father, and Son. And we're living in the fellowship of the Trinity, which means that we practice love in a community. Like we're called to love as a church in a way that doesn't make sense in this world. And it's not just love, but that love leads us to recognize what is not of God in this world and to abide and remain in the love of God. That is where we are in 1 John, but then we come to these first few verses of what Arnie read. And I'm in, I'm in chapter 2, verse 28. If you have your Bibles open, that would be great. I'd love for you to follow along as I read. But 2.28 are the first words that... First John continues after everything he said, and what he's trying to tell you and I is continue in him. Continue in Jesus. And now, dear ch- children, continue in him, so that when he appears, he may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So, dear children, John says this all the time, dear children, and it's not meant to be like put down or anything like that. He talks to all believers as children. We're part of the family. It is a loving mention of the fact that we are part of God's family. And so he says, dear children, just talking about how personally he cares for the people he's talking to, continue in Jesus. And by continuing based on the confidence that Jesus has given us, we can be unashamed. The next thing he says is this in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of God. Everyone. Everyone who's done what is right is born of him. You know, it's based off the logic that God is righteous. You can look at lots of different scriptures and talk about how God is righteous. So if God is righteous, if we're the children of God, then we are to pursue righteousness. Just as God is light, we walk in light. That's all the resonance, if that makes sense. But then he has this reference to children, and it's this theme in this passage and a big deal in the rest of the book, which is what does it mean to be born of God? Which for me also is what it talks about to belong with God, to belong with the community of love that God's called us to. What does it mean to be born of God? This verb born in him is used 10 times in 1 John, and this is the first times it's used. 10 times. And it speaks, and I actually go to John's gospel, which is the other John, if that makes sense. You have John, John 1, 2, 3. So what's really interesting is John, the gospel, really resonates with this letter in lots of ways. But in John 1, the gospel, he references it really clearly that children born not, that the children of God are children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of, or of their own will, but they're born of God. That it's something that God does. It's not something that we do. We don't birth ourselves. That even sounds weird to say, right? And so what he's talking about is this idea of receiving, receiving Christ as children of God. So how do you really know if you belong? How do you really know that you're born of God? And the reason I start off by talking about this this way is I think of a friend, I, I, going years back. So I think of a friend from where I used to live 
that had a specific long struggle with understanding his own faith and relationship with Jesus. I think of him because I'll just say his name's Tim. That's not his name. I think of Tim because I spent a lot of hours counseling him and listening to his struggles. Where as a single guy, growing up as an adult, he felt very isolated. And he also dealt with a lot of disappointments in life. So much so that he wouldn't, he, wouldn't take a sh- he wouldn't take a chance. He would actually prefer to teach the safe and easy thing every single time. Whenever he would attempt to shuffle the deck in terms of the options in his life, it would be cut short because it went past his own comfort zone. His past failures would lead to further and further fear and anxiety. And it's not just the fear, but it's his missteps. He, 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 would harm, he would harm others by his behavior, how he would act. And at the same time, he would close himself off from other people in the church, from his friends, people who dedicated time after time with him. And I think about him, Tim, in the sense of how do I help him understand that he belongs to God, that he's born of God, that he's a child of God, and that how he goes from his life is not based off this identity of fear or anxiety or I'm, I'm just going to mess up or I'm not good enough, this worth. And instead, he's, he actually lives in life as a child of God, precious to the Lord, as each of us are to the Lord. I think about him because it helps personalize for me, my experience with him, but I also know and connect with that. How I have wrestled in my life with the sense of, do I really belong with God? Like as someone who's grown up as a Christian for the majority of my life, I often question, like, have I really done this to merit God's grace? And in truth, I haven't. We tempt ourselves and trick ourselves into thinking that we deserve the grace of God and the love of God when that is just not true. It is not true, and yet we play as if we do. So what this passage does for us, as I'm going to go through this rest of this passage, is I think it explains these qualities of what it is like to be born of God, to be born as part of the children of God. And the first step is love. The first step is love. If you look at the first verse of chapter 3, you'll see it. It's this beautiful verse. It says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. That is what we are. It's an exclamation point of, this is the love that has shaped the world. And you wonder, you know, sometimes you, you think, wow, the world around me is so messed up. It's so confused and darkened. Well, the world doesn't know God. And to think that a world is living apart from God, we, would, we really shouldn't be surprised at the confusion, the distortion that's taking place in the world because it's trying to live life not knowing God. The next verse in verse, three, chapter, verse 2 of chapter 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be is not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Something about this verse just has this, actually what I experience is a very gracious mystery to it in the sense of what we will be has not yet been made known. Have you thought about that in your life and journey with Jesus? Who you will be 10, 15 years is not quite clear. We believe that God's planned it. He's gone in front of us and before us in our life. But there's something to us, how we experience that promise and God's sovereignty in our lives. 
I'm not quite sure I see how that's taking place. And that's how we're intended to respond to God. What we will be has not been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. So it's interesting to think that as we may, I don't quite know what's happening, but as I seek to be part of life and participating with Christ, that I become like Jesus. And then the last verse speaks to the next sort of natural progression of this, which is about purifying themselves. It says, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. As God is righteous, we should pursue righteousness. As God is light, we should walk in light. As God is pure and holy, we should seek purity in our lives. And by me saying that, what it means is embracing a process of transformation for all of us. None of us come at this journey with Christ and feel like we have it all together. I think that's one of the main tensions I really feel in this passage that was just read beforehand. This idea that I truly, honestly, humbly before you as your pastor do not feel like I understand everything about my own life and journey with Jesus, nor do I think I understand yours. But God in his grace is working through us to bring change to our hearts. It means that as we prepare our hearts to become like Jesus, we receive hope. That's the hope. That's the hope that we're not left in our brokenness and our darkness. God loves us so much, he doesn't leave us where we are, but he leads us to who we will become. And this is the gift of baptism. We're going to celebrate several baptisms in our church this month and next month, and I'm really looking forward to it. But baptism is a way of proclaiming the signs of God's promises among his people, that God's grace has come down, that we live as forgiven people, as the body of Christ. And the waters of baptism, they offer us cleansing, purification, and they anticipate faith in each of our lives. They anticipate that we will trust Jesus in the moments that might be very scary for us. They already see them ahead of us and say, I believe and I will strengthen, you, strengthen your faith in that moment of weakness. And then what it also says in baptism is that when, not if, we fall into sin, we must not despair that God's mercy is not good enough for each of us, nor continue in sin, but accept the grace and lead, allow it to lead us into change. The hope is connected to us pursuing pure, purity. So it starts with love, that God's love is lavished on us, that we could seek purity, which is, you know, which is really leading a life cleansed and forgiven. And the other thing that he describes, born of God, life, in this passage, is about this role of resisting sin as part of the journey. You can't avoid it when you read this passage. Look at verse 4 with me in chapter 3. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know what he, that he appeared so he might take away our sins. In him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And I will need to at least camp here a little bit to try to explain how I see First John here and other parts of the book are explaining this call to resist sin. Because I can see in my own life, and I know as someone who has been forgiven by God, that I have stepped away from him more than a few times. 
It's almost a daily offense, what's taking place in my heart, what's taking place in my family and relationships, this idea, oh, no, I've fallen short of what God's called me to. So one of the things the scripture tells us about is that the heart is deceitful above all things. You can find that in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17. And that each person, when they are tempted, this is James, actually, each person, when they are tempted, are dragged away by their own evil desire. And then after that desire is conceived in us, it gives birth to sin. And when full growth, that birth leads to death, this idea that these sins will tear us down from the inside. And we certainly need to take sin seriously. I think that's why First John is writing the way he is. These, we need to take sin seriously, responding to God as he's God and not. You look at some of that language of lawlessness, where everyone who breaks the law is sinning, and sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is just rebellion to God, not living as God is God, and trying to live as our own king in our own world. And yet you can find lots of voices in the Bible that talk about this tension that I'm trying to share with you today. You can look at Paul in Romans 7 that talks about how I do not do what I want, and I do the very thing that I hate. If you found yourselves, I keep messing up. I keep falling short. I keep doing the things that I hate. It, it harms me, and I cave inside. It harms other people around. I keep doing these things, and there's this tension and this battle that's t- taking place in our lives. And what I want to say to all of us, is that if that tension, that battle is happening within you, the very fact that you're wrestling with doubts and fears related to what's happening and how you are seeking the life, the good life, it points to the fact that the Spirit's already opened up your conscience to a new way of being. That you wouldn't actually feel those things if you didn't have a sense of love and of calling and of grace. If you did not have those things, then you would not feel those doubts, those fears. You wouldn't be worried about living apart from God because you wouldn't think it would matter. And yet, I and I think many of us sometimes are just worrying. What is that about? What is that about? And so there's this tension that I feel because First John leans really strong into this idea. Really strong as you read it. It sounds like if you sin, you're probably not born of God. If you don't sin, you're probably born of God, which is a very simplistic way of saying it. But when I read that, I think, I, I think I don't belong in one of those categories. Well, one of the things I want to say about 1 John is that 1 John, it talks about sin as a moral or immoral action. I do a moral thing. Or I do an immoral thing. And that when we commit sin, and we, we actually don't place ourselves with Christ. We actually place ourselves with the devil. We place ourselves with the one wrecking havoc and deception in the world because we're participating in that deception. And what First John also says is that right living comes through intimacy with God. That if we want to be about right living, we must seek to be close with God. Whereas there are people that have removed themselves from this church community that don't want to be close with God and don't think they need to. They don't think they need to. That's what he's writing to. The people that left this community that First John's writing, they don't think they need to be close with God. They don't need Jesus. They could, they could be spiritual and wise enough on their own. And what he says is that we must be not only close to God, but he speaks of specific sins. So First John is not going to give you a whole list of, here's all the things that could be missteps for the church or for following Jesus. But he focuses on several. One of which is denying Jesus as the Son of God. 
And the other one he points to is the sin of not loving your brother or your sister, of not loving a fellow believer. He does not touch on everything, and our minds and hearts go to lots of them, but he does emphasize those. I will say that. And so when this tension, as I'm already stepping into myself, or I think of my friend Tim, is this tension of, okay, I really believe that Jesus died for me, but I mess up still, as I think all of us do. So how do I understand this reality as 1 John describes it? And there are three possible ways to help understand that tension that I want to describe with us this morning. One is that, okay, 1 John could be talking about willful, deliberate sins. That's what he has in mind, this idea, I'm going to determine myself to, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm, I know God told me this is a good thing, and I am going to actually do the opposite thing. <laughs> that's, what, that's, what, that's what he could be talking about which I have done as well. I'm still in that box. Or it could be that he's just talking about habitual sin, patterns. Like I am in a pattern of really messing it up. If a sin is not waking up on time, oh, I'm in a bad pattern. That could be the pattern, if that makes sense. Oh, that's a pattern that's part of my life. I am in a pattern of sinning as opposed to, oh, that happened one time. It was accident. I didn't even mean to do it could be that. Maybe he's talking about that. But the third option, which I think is the best one, is that while John speaks very strongly about sin not being part of being born of God, he also knows in his own journey a process that his strong words are to a community that's been completely divided over a wrong understanding of sin. And that this process and really this preparation that I think he sees his church community in and I see ours in is that we are in a process of being prepared to be in the presence of Jesus. And that means we must take sin seriously. And the reality is that we, unless we don't take sin truly seriously, and until Jesus actually comes back in his second return, we will not fully be free of sin. I say that because of some of the verses 1 John's already said, which speak so strongly in this, because John wants us to take comfort in the grace and good news of Jesus Christ. Because he made sure to say it earlier in the book. I mean, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I read that earlier in the service. Or 1 John 2, 1, which Arnie read for us, my dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin because we want to take it seriously. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. It all is... Dependent, assuming we will fall short, even after accepting grace in our lives. So the question is, how do we take a step forward? How do we resist sin as part of this journey with Jesus? And resisting sin is part of how we step into fellowship with God. You could probably think in your own life that you would not see the time you were closest with God as also being the time when there was the most sin and darkness in your heart. That really, as Paul talks about, we must put off the old in place of the new. And we have an active role in that, which is why that resisting language is important. But you can't do that just because you, if you want to will yourself to it. It must be a work of God through the gift and empowerment and deposit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, one quote I wanted to read that captures this journey, because putting off the old self is a Holy Spirit act in each of us that we abide in each day, 
There's also this, and this is a quote from a pastor, Greg Boyd from Minnesota. He says this, God doesn't destroy who we are with all of our memories, our habits, or our past associations when he recreates us in Christ Jesus. There's not like, can I get rid of Tim A, and then can we have Tim B come somewhere? He doesn't destroy our past. He uses it. He, he rather seeks to transform all of our memories, habits, and past associations on the basis of our recreated identities. All of who we are gets shaped by the love of God. Our personalities, our stories, however difficult they are, they become part of this witness of what God's love does in each of us. This miraculous thing God's love does in each of us. So, the people of God, the children of God resist sin. They know God's love. They know it. It's been lavished upon them. And the other thing that this passage tells us is that the children of God avoid being led astray, which is not just about resisting sin. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to remind us about this. In verse 7 of of the chapter we're in, in chapter 3, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. And if you go down a little further in verse 8, the one who does what is sinful of the, is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. If you keep going to the next verse, verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. That seed could reference a couple things, but what I'll tell you is that seed, I truly believe, references the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit rooted in us, as Ezekiel 36 tells us, God will put his spirit in us. He will put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his statutes and to observe his commands. That obedience to God is only possible through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is what this passage ends with. This is how we know that the children of God who they are and who the children of God are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or their sister. So I've already tried to explain how I want to answer some of the tension I feel. This idea that, wow, I, I believe that I am part of the church, that God loves me. I believe who Jesus is, and I am stepping into a reality each day after day, accepting and embracing this love. But part of this is also I know that I still fall short. And when I read First John, Pastor Chris, I, I still feel this, this, this conviction of sin. Well, I would certainly tell you to not dismiss the conviction. But I would not, but I would caution you away from it leading you to a place of shame. Because that would completely undo the point and function of why Christ came for you. Like there, there's two main reasons that I've been dancing around a little bit in this whole passage why Christ came for you, why he came the way he did and what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. He came to take away sins. You could go back and look at verse 3, 5 where he says, but you know that he appeared so that, we might take, that he might take away our sins. While it doesn't explain it all in depth, it's pointing to the blood of Christ that forgives us and absolves us that we might live in community with God. That God is faithful to his promises and he's faithful to forgive you. That Christ took away sin by his atoning death on behalf of sinners. Sinners like me. Sinners like you. 
And the other thing, that he didn't just come to take away sins through the cross. He came to destroy the work of the devil. He came to destroy the work of the devil. Look at 3.8 for my reason for this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I really stretched that one there. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And I've already said a word about this, but I will say more. That when we participate in the deception about who we are as children of God, that we actually allow the devil to have much more of a stronghold in our lives than he actually has his own power to do. That we as the children of God are secure in our salvation and assurance, and I hope you know that. But we can be tricked. As brothers and sisters, we can be tricked into believing that we must earn our salvation or that we are not secure in our faith. But as it also says in Scripture, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That Satan, as he's cast, is the accuser, and he accuses people of not actually knowing the truth. But as people of the truth, we can stand firm, and he has no hold on us. The basis of which Satan would deceive any of us is gone. And so, now that the removal of the accuser happens, it leads us to what Christ has ultimately prepared for each of us, which is new birth. To be born of God means to be born again. To be born of God means to be born again. It means that you find hope not in what you find strong about yourself. Or you don't find hope in being financially stable. Or you don't find hope in being vocationally secure. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. You don't find hope through pride, confidence, really great health. Hope comes through being born again. Born again, which is being recreated in the image of God that God desired for you to live and abide in. It's being born again, not in the false stories and narratives about what matters in this world, or not about how great of a Christian you can be. Born again, not in a false sense of legalism, poor packaged morality, or bondage. To be born of God is to be brought into a new spiritual life by the will and spirit of God. And we're born again into hope. When you leave today, I pray that you will know the hope of Christ. That God has seen all the days ahead of you and he has you. That God will be with you each and every day to come. And your reality, if you see Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your reality as a child of God is fixed and secure. Then nothing can take that away from you. This idea of being born again points and resonates with the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John 3, which is the gospel of John 3. But Nicodemus was a great Pharisee. Probably one of the most moral people around. He knew all the things about the scriptures. He knew what is right. And he comes before Jesus, and he does it in secret. He does it when no one else can see. And Jesus replied, it tells us in John 3, 3, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. You can't enter it. And this is what Nicodemus says. How can someone be born if they're old? That's a very obvious question. I appreciate when the Bible asks questions I want to ask. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. He goes very literal with it. And here's Jesus' response. And this is for us as well as we think about, how do I step in this life of being born of God? 
I resist sin, I pursue life, I pursue the purity, and it is through being born again of water and spirit. Very, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again, born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should be surprised at my saying, you, you, shouldn't be, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So I think about how we attempt to solve our questions, to solve our problems. How do I get it right tomorrow? How do I do the right thing for my wife, for my family, love my neighbor as myself? And I attempt to answer that question often of, what are my own reservoirs? How much do you think I can handle? How much can I actually do? And that is a flesh trying to answer the flesh question. That is the flesh trying to respond to the flesh. Flesh, you don't have it. What does it look like to instead attempt to respond to the world from the spirit responding with the spirit? Embracing that our new life is happening right now. And it is through humility, it is through the grace of God at work in our lives, and it is through this assurance that God will give us the capacity to resist sin and to obey him. You might think you have fallen short in lots of ways. Perhaps you have. But through the Spirit, you do have the power to say no to the devil, to say no to the darkness, to say no to the despair, and to step into the light. You do have the ability to do that because the Spirit indwells in you. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up and lead us in a response. One of the other uh, conversations Jesus had was the young ruler, the rich young ruler that came before him, and he asked them, how can I enter the kingdom of God? And he said, well, Jesus asked them, Did, uh, have you followed the law? Have you followed all the commands? that I've given. And he said, yes, I've, I've followed them all my life. Very pridefully so. And then Jesus showed love to him. That's what Matthew tells us. Jesus showed love to him. How did Jesus show love to this man who was on this track of legalism, who was on this track of trying to get everything right out of his own ability, flesh to flesh? He told him, one thing you lack, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in me. And come, follow me. He was honest about the one thing he knew that the man lacked. That all of this flesh to flesh, that he took security in his possessions and that that was actually his hope. He actually had hope in the things that he had covered. I hope that, I hope, I, I really don't want to lead you to, to, into trying to embrace hope as something that you have covered. But it's something about being completely submitted to God. Surrendering to him. Because he tells the man, I'm not the center of your heart, so I don't think you should act like I am. How do we seek for God to be the center of our hearts? And how do we embrace hope, not as people far off, not as people that don't belong, but as hope among the people who've been born again? Will you pray with me? As we sit with this passage, We might think of our own struggle with sin. We might think of other people near us who've fallen short, who keep hurting themselves after mistake or misstep. And Lord, it's to us and to all those around us that, Lord, you came. 
You came so that we wouldn't have to live in shame. You came so that we wouldn't have to be deceived by the devil at work in this world. Instead, you came that we would be set free. Instead, you came that we would have hope. You came so that it would not be about what we do, but about how we, who we become and about how we can be people who are loved into being, loved into becoming. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just, just bless the minds and hearts in this room by your Holy Spirit to see where they are in your journey. And that, Lord, you would give them the faith and trust to take the next step in their lives, whether that is to proclaim that you are the Lord and Savior of their lives, or whether that's to practice forgiveness, whether that's to seek healing, or whether that's to resist temptation and sin right now, because that is what the devil is trying to use against them. And, Lord, it's in these things that we say that the devil does not have any power, nor does sin. And your cross is enough to save all of us. So, Lord, I pray that we would receive your love and your mercy and your grace. I pray that you would bring healing to our hearts. Lord, lead us to your hope. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.